I'm Ali Paul, an associate in the planning team at Herbert Smith Freehills, and I'm delighted to be the host of this first episode in our Back to Basics Development Consent Regime podcast series. The planning team at Herbert Smith Freehills is very experienced in advising on nationally significant infrastructure projects consented under the Planning Act 2008. We worked with EF Energy on the first major development consent application back in 2012, and since then, we have advised on all key aspects of the regime, working with project promoters, interested parties, local authorities and statutory undertakers. Drawing on our knowledge and experience of the development consent regime, we have created this podcast series as part of our Back to Basics Knowledge Programme. The programme is aimed at helping people who are new to the industry or to this particular consenting regime by providing a bite-sized crash course on key topics. This series comprises five podcast episodes recorded by members of our planning team. Each episode focuses on a different stage in the development consent process and provides a summary of the requirements for that stage. Each episode will also identify key pitfalls to watch out for and explain the roles of the consultant and legal team, the planning inspectorate and the Secretary of State. Before we get started, I should probably start by introducing my colleague Charlotte Dyer, who will be our speaker for today's episode. Charlotte joined the planning team as a trainee in 2006 before qualifying into the team in 2008 and being promoted to the role of of counsel in 2018. During her 12 years in the team, Charlotte has worked on multiple development consent projects. She spent 18 months on an in-house secondment at EDF Energy, advising on both the Hinkley Point C and Sizewell C projects. Charlotte was recently listed as an associate to watch in the Chambers and Partners listings and a next generation partner in the Legal 500 listings. Charlotte, you're very much the oracle of our team on this subject, so thank you for doing this episode today. Thanks, Sally, for that lovely introduction. Um, and thank you also for inviting me to be part of this series. And this episode in particular is it's a subject that I'm genuinely really interested in. So what will this first episode cover then? Well, in this episode, I'll provide a general introduction to the development consent regime. And we'll then look at the pre-application stage, which covers everything from project conception all the way up until the application is prepared for submission. Later episodes in the series will cover the application submission, pre-examination, examination and decision stage. So I'll start off by explaining the origins of the Planning Act 2008, which introduced the development consent regime. Now, I still think of it, Ali, as being a new regime, but that's really just showing my age, as it's actually now been in place for more than a decade, scary to say. It was introduced as a means of speeding up, simplifying and consolidating the process for obtaining planning consent for specific types of major infrastructure development. It created a new type of consent, which takes the form of a statutory instrument known as a Development Consent Order, or DCO. The 2008 Act lists projects that fall within the definition of Nationally Significant Infrastructure Project, or NSIP, and for these projects, it's mandatory to obtain a DCO. And indeed, it's actually a criminal offence to build such a project without a DCO. These projects come within the fields of energy, transport, water, wastewater and waste. An example of such a project is EDF Energy's Sizewell C nuclear power station, which is currently at the pre-examination stage. Other projects of national significance that aren't listed in the 2008 Act, but come within the fields that I just mentioned, or a business or commercial projects of a prescribed type can voluntarily opt into the regime. In order to do so though, they must satisfy certain criteria and the Secretary of State must issue what's known as a Section 35 direction. 
An example of this type of project is the Aquind interconnector between the UK and France, which is currently at the examination stage. The key parties in the DCA regime are firstly the applicant or promoter, who must consult on the proposals, prepare the application and participate in the examination. Secondly, the local planning authority, which is not the decision maker, but must be consulted at the pre-application stage and has an opportunity to submit a report on the anticipated local impacts of the project. Thirdly, interested parties such as key stakeholders, landowners whose land is to be compulsory acquired, and any person who submits a relevant representation and registers as an interested party. Fourthly, the planning inspectorate, which examines the application and recommends whether it should be approved or refused. And fifthly, the Secretary of State, who decides whether or not to grant the DCO. Now, when the regime was introduced back in 2008, a new body known as the Infrastructure Planning Commission was created to carry out both the examination and the decision-making roles. But that body was abolished by the coalition government back in 2011. Thanks, that's useful background. Before we move on, listeners may be aware that this summer's white paper proposed a complete overhaul of the planning regime in this country. Perhaps you can explain what has been proposed in terms of the development consent regime. Well, actually, I've published a blog article on that topic entitled Planning White Paper Lays Foundations for a New Route to Housing. Very catchy title. And this can be found on Herbert Smith Freehill's Real Estate Development Notes webpage. And we put a link to the blog on the podcast homepage. Thanks. I definitely recommend checking that out. OK, now that we have discussed which projects fall within the regime and who the key players are, can you describe to us the first stage in obtaining a DCO? Yes, certainly. So once a promoter has established that its proposed project is an NSIP requiring development consent, or alternatively, it's obtained a Section 35 direction bringing it within the regime, the first stage is to carry out pre-application consultation. So what does pre-application consultation under the Planning Act entail? Unlike the Planning Permission under the Town and Country Planning Act 1990, which listeners might be more familiar with, pre-application consultation for all DCO projects is a statutory requirement. The planning inspector actually cannot accept an application until adequate consultation has taken place. It's a fundamental feature of the Planning Act regime that it's front-loaded so that key issues can be identified and resolved, ideally, before the application is submitted. Amongst other things, this front-loading also enables the local community to influence the proposals brought forward within their area. Once a DCO application has been submitted, it's relatively difficult to make material changes to it, particularly towards the end of the examination stage. And who needs to be consulted? There are three strands of consultation. The first strand is known as Section 42 consultation. This is carried out with relevant local planning authorities, certain prescribed bodies such as Natural England and the Environment Agency, the Marine Management Organisation for Offshore Development, the Greater London Authority for Projects in Greater London, landowners and people who might be able to make certain compensation claims in respect of the project, um, the second strand is known as Section 47 consultation. This is with the local community and must be in accordance with a published statement of community consultation, which itself needs to be consulted on in advance with local authorities. So in effect, a consultation about a consultation. And the third strand is known as Section 48 publicity. This is with the wider general public and requires notices to be published in national and local newspapers and displayed at the site. That sounds fairly straightforward. What can possibly go wrong then? 
<laughs> well, there are a number of potential pitfalls at the pre-application stage, which promoters need to watch out for. For example, there are many different legal notices that must be prepared and published, displayed or sent out at the right time and to the right consultees for each of the separate strands of consultation. Failure to get this right could result in the application not being accepted by the planning inspectorate later down the line. Sounds like a job for the lawyers then. So what about timings? Unlike for some of the later stages in the development consent regime, there is no statutory timescale for the maximum length of the pre-application stage. There is a statutory minimum of 28 days of consultation, but most promoters consult for significantly longer than that. There is also no one-size-fits-all approach. The length of consultation and when and how it is carried out will vary from project to project. And whilst this gives the promoter flexibility, it also makes it more challenging to ensure that the planning inspectorate will later accept that the consultation was sufficient in accordance with the Planning Act. A lot of time and money could be wasted if the application is not accepted due to inadequate consultation. Engaging with the relevant local authorities at an early stage is crucial for all projects in determining the appropriate consultation strategy. Back in 2015, the former Department of Communities and Local Government published useful guidance on the pre-application process. This identified the difficult balance that project promoters face in deciding when to consult. On the one hand, the guidance states that consultation must take place at a sufficiently early stage to allow consultees a real opportunity to influence the proposals. On the other hand, consultees will need sufficient information on the project to be able to recognise and understand the impacts, which is only possible once the proposals are relatively well progressed. For many projects, particularly larger and more complex projects, this dilemma is addressed by having multiple stages of consultation. For example, an early stage on initial options, then a later stage on preferred options. Once the promoter has decided when to consult, how does it work out who to consult? Unfortunately, it can be quite a complex exercise to establish who must be consulted. For example, working out which local authorities must be consulted seems simple in theory. However, it's not just the host local authority. So in other words, the authority within whose boundaries the development would be located, who must be consulted, but also all of the neighbouring authorities. This applies not just to the main development sites, but also any associated development sites that will be included within the DCO application. This can be quite a long list, particularly for linear schemes. There must be quite a few local authorities who are still relatively unfamiliar with the DCO regime, for example, because they haven't had a DCO in their area before and therefore struggle to understand their role in the process. What can be done to help those authorities? Yes, that's right, Ali. And I think early engagement with relevant local authorities is key to avoid frustration and to manage expectations, including with regard to council resourcing and funding. It may also be helpful to refer the local authorities to the Planning Inspectorate's user-friendly Advice Note 2 on the role of local authorities in the development consent process. That moves us nicely on to my next question. What is the role of the Planning Inspectorate and Secretary of State at the pre-application stage? They have fairly limited roles at this early stage. Um, the Planning Inspectorate, which decides whether to accept the application on behalf of the Secretary of State, will not be able to confirm whether the consultation is adequate until the application has been submitted and a detailed consultation report, setting out full details of the consultation that was carried out, has been prepared. 
Whilst the planning inspectorate can give useful general pre-application advice, project promoters should keep in mind that the planning inspectorate has a duty to publish all such advice on its website to ensure full transparency. The role of the legal and consultant team is however very important at the pre-application stage. In addition to helping the promoter to choose and refine the development sites and design proposals, to identify the list of consultees and to draft the legal consultation notices and consultation materials, the project team will also be heavily involved in the preparation of the Preliminary Environmental Information, or PEI. PEI is information that is reasonably required for the consultation bodies to develop an informed view of the likely significant environmental effects of the development. It can take the form of a draft environmental statement or a separate report. Either way, it requires detailed technical and legal inputs and will be a key document used by consultees, particularly key stakeholders, in preparing their consultation responses. Thank you, Charlotte. That's provided a useful summary of the first stage in the development consent process. Thanks, Ali. Um, the next episode in this podcast series will cover the application submission and acceptance stage. And for that episode, I'll be joined by my colleague, Rebecca Butterworth. Great. Looking forward to it. Also, please do note that whilst this podcast is intended to provide a general overview of the development consent regime, the law can change quickly and a general overview can't take account of the many different factors that will affect each individual case. So please seek independent legal or professional advice. If you would like more information on anything mentioned in today's podcast or any of the other podcast episodes in this series, please contact a member of the Herbert Smith Freehills planning team using the contact details on the podcast homepage.